You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 14, we're going to read verses 25 through the end of the chapter. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come again to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. It is so clear to us. Um, your perspective on the cross of Christ is is evident as you have spoken to us about what that means for us as your people. So we thank you for that, and we thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word and to focus our attention upon it. We pray that you would be glorified through our study, that you would grant to us understanding in your word, that we may see and hear what you have designed for us to see, what the intention of the author is, and the most importantly, the intention of the divine author. May you open our eyes to your word, that we may behold in it wonderful things. That is our prayer, and we ask that you would be our guide and our teacher here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The cross of Jesus Christ is the central element of Christian theology and of the Christian religion. And any message, any gospel message that does not have the cross as the very centerpiece of its furniture, as it were, and the very center of its message is not a Christian gospel. That is why the prosperity gospel and the liberal gospel of black liberation theology and the liberal social gospel and any gospel of works righteousness is not a true Christian gospel and not Christian in any sense because the cross is not at the center of it. The cross is the defining element of Christian theology and Christian witness and Christian testimony. That's not to make light of or to, to give short shrift to the resurrection because you, you can't, they, they must and do go together, the cross and the resurrection. And it's no accident that those groups which make little of the death of Christ will also see very little significance in the resurrection of Christ. And to compromise the message of the gospel and the centrality of the cross is to get the, the entire intention and, uh, and significance of the resurrection wrong as well. J.C. Ryle in his commentary in the gospel of, uh, no, sorry, it's not his commentary in the gospel of John. Sorry about that. I'm used to quoting his commentary in the gospel of John. This was from something else that J.C. Ryle wrote that I ran across this last week, and I have no idea where this comes from. But J.C. Ryle says this, the doctrine of Christ crucified is the grand peculiarity of the Christian religion. Other religions have laws and moral precepts, forms and ceremonies, rewards and punishments, but other religions cannot tell us of a dying Savior. They cannot show us the cross. This is the crown and glory of the gospel. This is the special comfort which belongs to it alone. Miserable indeed is that religious teaching which calls itself Christian and yet contains nothing of the cross. A man who teaches in this way might as well profess to explain the solar system and yet tell his hearers nothing about the sun, end quote. That's profound. The cross is the grand peculiarity of the Christian religion. 
That is what sets Christianity apart from everything else, all other religions, because no other religion can tell us of a dying Savior, of a suffering Savior who would, who would die in the place of and for His people. But it is not enough to simply know that the cross exists and to know that a, a Jewish carpenter turned preacher died on a Roman ca- cross almost 2,000 years ago without understanding the significance of the cross from the divine perspective. It is one thing to know of it as a historical event. It is another thing to understand the significance of it as God sees the cross. Those are two totally different things. You and I, left to our own reasonings, our own understanding, our own ability to reason and think and observe from history, we might observe the the historic details of the cross and say, okay, a man died on a cross, he suffered, people claim to have seen him rise again, but without God's vantage point on that event, without God revealing to us His perspective on the cross, we would never be able to understand that. We could read the Gospels and, and see the, gospel, the cross in its salient historic details, but we really want to get God's perspective on what happened on the cross. Left to himself, man comes up with all kinds of weird ideas about what the cross is and what the cross means. You've heard some of these. A liberal theology would say that the cross is really just a demonstration of the love of God. It's just a demonstration of the love of God. God wanted to show us how much He loved us, so He sent Jesus of Nazareth to suffer great pain, so that in seeing all the pain that He suffered, we might understand that's how much God loves us. And we're supposed to look at the cross and and see in the cross that God loves us this much, and stretched out His arms this much, and then He died. Have you ever heard that? See what I did there with the cross? My arms out like that? And says that's supposed to be the meaning of the cross, just the love of God. We're supposed to Look at the cross according to liberal theology. Look at the cross and see the love of God. And we're all supposed to say, oh, look how much God loves us. Uh, My heart is strangely warmed. Now let's go work in a soup kitchen. Well, I'm not denying that God loves us. And I'm not denying that the cross is an expression of that love. But the love of God is not the central idea of the cross. It's not the central element of the cross. The love of God is there, but that's not all the cross is. The cross is also a demonstration of the justice of God, an expression of the righteousness of God. It is atonement, it is substitution, it is sacrifice, it is propitiation or satisfaction for a sin debt. There's a lot more going on at the cross than just an expression of the love of God. Or some people would treat the cross as if it was just an accident of history. Here you have this a, a Jewish um, carpenter turned Galilean preacher who just sort of wandered around the Judean countryside giving religious platitudes and expressing moral teachings. And then he run afoul of some uh, Roman authorities. And because he didn't want to pay his taxes, he uh, he got in, in bad with the Romans and he's sort of caught up in the betrayal and all of the events of the day. And he didn't want to go to the cross. He didn't want to really die on a cross, but he couldn't avoid it. And so he sort of swept along and just an accident of history. He was the wrong man, the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and so he died on a cross. And now we're all supposed to be somehow wooed by this. That's the accident of history view. You call it the Bill O'Reilly view. That's Bill O'Reilly's view of the cross. It shouldn't surprise you, by the way, that Bill O'Reilly and Jesus of Nazareth have different ideas of what the cross is. I hope that's no shock to you. Or some people just view it as a martyrdom. Here you had a man who was so far ahead of his time and he was very progressive and and he, uh, you know, very, very much like we are today. And his real message was that women should be in leadership and and gays should have the right to marry, and all of us should sell our possessions and give it to the government to redistribute amongst the poor. And so he was sort of a progressive revolutionary in that sense, but he didn't, he threatened sort of the religious establishment and the, and the people who really were interested in, in holding on to their power and their, their prosperity, and so they crucified him. And rather than denying his message, which was so progressive, rather than denying that, he just died to show how much uh, his views could change the world. You call that the Roma Downey view. Roman Downey is the one that made the Jesus, the Son of God movie. 
I don't know if you saw that. Remember, there's that great scene in there where Jesus and Peter are in the boat, and Peter says, Lord, what are we going to do? And Jesus said, we're going to change the world, Peter. Remember that scene in the Gospels? Well, of course you don't remember that scene in the Gospels. No, it's not there. Roman Downey Jr. was really good as Iron Man, but when it comes to the death of Jesus of Nazareth, she is not to be trusted on any of those details. But God's perspective on the cross is entirely different. From God's vantage point, the death of His Son on the cross was the payment for the sin price of all who would trust in that sacrifice on the cross. It was the satisfaction of divine wrath. It was not an accident. Jesus was not a victim. He was a volunteer. He did not spend his life trying to avoid death. He spent his life provoking the religious leaders of his day to the point where they were willing to kill him. He spent his life proclaiming his own deity his own Godhead, his own equality with the Father, so clearly and so much to the point that the religious leaders said, we must kill him. Not just to protect, because they did feel threatened, it was not just to protect their own uh, their, their own power and their own prosperity, but it was, in a sense, to kill him because they understood who he was, they rejected that message, and they hated him because they love darkness and they hate the light. And so in the death of Christ, we have Jesus dying for the sins of his people. That is God's perspective on the cross. Now, just left to ourselves, we would never come up with that. We'd come up with the Bill O'Reilly view. We'd come up with the Roman Downey Jr. view. We would come up with any of the other views that like liberal theology comes up with, but we would never get God's perspective on the cross until we see it in Scripture and we have God's commentary on those events. In the passage that we read at the beginning, this is a long way to get to there. In the passage that we read at the beginning, we have Jesus' perspective on the events of His death in those verses. And we see that there are Four things that make the cross a good thing from the perspective of Jesus. So when we look at the cross from, we say we're looking at it from God's perspective, we are at the same time looking at it from Jesus' perspective. Because they are one and the same. So how did Jesus of Nazareth view his death on the cross and the good that would come from it? Well, there are four things, and we're going to see them in verses 28 through the end of the chapter. And we are going to get through all four of these today, verses 28 through the end of the chapter. First, we see that the death on cross would, that Jesus' death on the cross would, in verse 28, secure his glory. In verse 29, strengthen his disciples. In verse 30, show his righteousness. And then in verse 31, show his love. It would secure his glory, strengthen his disciples, show his righteousness, or demonstrate his righteousness, if you use the word show because it starts with an S, and show also his love. And I don't mean his love for us. I'm talking now about his love for the Father. So beginning in verse 28, how would it secure his glory? Let's look at verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Verse 28, you have heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. When did he say that? He'd actually been saying it this whole evening, right? During the upper room discourse. He had told them that back in chapter 12. He told them that in chapter 13. Uh, Here we get into the beginning of chapter 14. And he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So he is reminding them of something that he told them back at the beginning of this evening. And he has told them several times throughout the evening that he was going, but that he would come again. And this was for the disciples a cause of great anxiety and fear and worry. This troubled them, which is why he says at the beginning of chapter 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is why he says in verse 27, uh, or verse, yeah, verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He is trying to quiet the disciples. They were looking at the death of Christ from the perspective of what it meant to them. Now look at the mild rebuke that he gives them in verse uh, 28. 
If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. That is a rebuke. It is a mild rebuke, but it is a rebuke nonetheless. If you truly loved me, if you loved me in truth, you would be rejoicing at the news that I go to the Father rather than being terrified at the prospect of me going to the Father. This was a cause of worry for them, and Jesus said it should be a cause of great rejoicing. Why were they worrying? Because they were looking at the reality of Him leaving from the vantage point of what that meant for them as opposed to what it meant for Him. If they truly loved Him, they would be rejoicing. Why? Because His going to the Father was some, was a cause of great joy and rejoicing. They should have looked at this and said, this Him returning to the Father means great things for Him. For us, not so much. But for Him, it means great things. They were analyzing the the, the death of Christ on the cross from the perspective of what His departure would mean for them. And this terrified them. Love does not seek its own. But what are the disciples doing at this moment? They're concerned about themselves. You're leaving. What does that mean for us? Instead of asking themselves, what does this mean for Him? What would it mean for Jesus, for Him to go to the Father? It would mean that He was returning back to the glory that He had before the world started. It would mean that He was leaving this sin hole and all of the opposition from sinners and all the hostility from wicked men. He was leaving His days of toil and trouble and and uh, dealing with unbelief and seeing it and seeing the effects of sin up front and, uh, up front and personal and close. He was leaving all of that, leaving the, the tired, sleepless nights, leaving the no, no place to leave, have, lay your head when... Uh, let me try that again. He was leaving the reality of not having a place to lay his head and not having a place to lay down, not having a home. He was leaving all of the, all of the humiliation of this world and the hostility from sinners and exchanging that for his exaltation and his vindication and His ascension to the right hand of the Father. He would, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, ascend to the right hand of the Father and take His seat there. And there He would be in glory and enjoy the uninterrupted worship of saints and of angels. That's what His death meant for Him. It meant vindication and deliverance from all that this world brought Him by way of humiliation. That's what He got out of it. But the disciples weren't looking at that. They were looking at what it meant to them. And so he reproves them. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father. They did not understand what it meant for him. And they were not in that moment caring what it meant for him. D.A. Carson in his commentary on John says this, to, the, to this point, the disciples have responded emotionally entirely according to their perception of their own gain or loss. If they had loved Jesus, they would have perceived that his departure to his own home was his gain and rejoiced with him at that prospect. As it is, their grief is an index of their self-centeredness. Think of it that way. Their grief was a measure of their own self-centeredness. They should have rejoiced, but instead they were troubled because all they were thinking about was themselves. A very mild reproof. If you loved me in truth, if you loved me as you should, if you loved me as I have loved you, you wouldn't be anxious over me going to the Father. You would be rejoicing that I go to the Father. Now look at that phrase at the end of verse 28. It does cause us some uh, concern, at least interpretively, Jesus says, for the Father is greater than I. Now, there are two interpretive issues we have to deal with there. First, what does Jesus mean when he says the Father is greater than he is, especially in the context of John? Have we not seen throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus has time time and again affirmed his own equality with the Father in nature and in substance and in being? What does he mean then here when he says that the Father is greater than I? Those who deny the deity of Christ and deny Trinitarian theology need to be able, in order to sustain their theology, they need to be able to prove that Jesus is a lesser being than God the Father. And so they will glom onto this verse. 
I've been in conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses, and if you get too deep into a conversation with Jehovah's Witness, they go right here, John 14, 28. I can almost predict the point in the conversation at which they will bring this verse out. Didn't Jesus say that the Father is greater than I? And if the Father is greater than He is, then how can He be God if God is greater than He is? If He is a lesser being, how can He be equal with the Father? Didn't Jesus say the Father is greater than I? So that's the first issue we have to deal with. I'll give you here the second one just a second. Let's, do, let's deal with this. What does Jesus mean when He says that the Father is greater than I? Are we to believe that the same Jesus who back in chapter 5 explained and defined and described His equality with the Father in such graphic terms and using such graphic language that by the time the Jews got done with that, they were ready to stone Him? Because they said in chapter 5, you are not only calling God your Father, saying you work on the Sabbath, but you're calling God your own Father, making yourself equal with God. And they picked up stones to stone him because they understood exactly what he was claiming, that he was equal with the Father. And then in chapter 8, three times he uses the divine name of himself, I am. And he culminates it, sort of climaxes at the very end of chapter 8 when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And he uses the name of God of himself so clearly that the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And he left and went out of the temple. And then in chapter 10, he said, I and the Father are one. And how did they respond to that? They wanted to kill him again. And over and over in John, we have seen him take divine names to himself, uh, assume divine prerogatives of forgiving sin, of, of healing people, of raising the dead, of claiming the authority to give eternal life to whomever he wishes. The things that the Jews would only imagine God the Father being able to do. Jesus claims all of those things as his own prerogatives. And he describes himself in terms where he is unequivocally and very clearly equal to the Father in his nature and in his being. So now are we to believe that after 14 chapters of that, he gets to the end and he undoes all of that by just simply saying, the Father is greater than I. Or is there something else at play? There is something else at play. When it comes to the deity of the divine nature, the divine nature of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can say fully and and confidently that He is equal to the Father. But as it touches upon His state of humiliation in His incarnation, He was not equal to the Father. He was lesser than the Father. One describes His being. One describes His role of submission and humiliation. So we believe, of course, that Jesus is fully God and that He is fully man. So it is true that in one sense He is utterly equal with the Father. In another sense, He is lesser than the Father. When we say that He is equal to the Father, we are describing His divine nature. When we say that He is lesser than the Father, we are describing His self-humiliation. His laying aside of His of the glories of His deity, the glories of that nature, and the independent use of those divine attributes, laying all of that aside so that He might take a lesser role and a lesser function. As the Athanasian Creed says, the, uh, He is equal to the Father as touching His Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching His manhood. So if you describe the Lord Jesus Christ in the perspective of His divine nature, His divinity, He is fully equal to the Father. But if you describe that person, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the perspective of His humanity, He is lesser than the Father because He took a lesser role. He humbled Himself, He took upon Himself human flesh, laid aside the independent use of those divine attributes and all of the glory that went with that position, and He humbled Himself and took the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men and humbled Himself even to the point of death. And in His incarnation, in His self-humiliation, He was in function and in role and in authority, lesser than the Father. He willingly submitted Himself to the Father. In fact, that's what the context describes. Look at verse 31. Verse 31, Jesus says, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. 
Everything he did was the Father's will. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. And in that sense, in terms of his role, in terms of his function, in terms of his position, he was lesser than the Father while being equal to the Father in terms of his nature. Let me give you an illustration. The President of the United States is greater than I. True or false? It's a true statement. In terms of his role, his responsibility, his authority, his position, his office, he is far greater than I am. Let me give you another statement. The President of the United States is better than I. You better hope not. Because if that's true, then we need to have a church discipline issue we need to exercise this afternoon at the annual meeting. And you need to kick me out of here. One describes position. Another describes quality of being. Do you see the difference? The President of the United States and I are equal in terms of our being. He's not more human than I am. He's not of more value than I am in terms of his ontology, his being, his makeup, his nature. We are equal as far as we are both human beings. I'm not a dog and he's a human or anything like that. Or the reverse. We are equal in terms of our ontology, our being. But in terms of our position or our role, he is greater than I. And I can say with utter confidence, the President of the United States, no matter who it is, no matter who gets put into that position, is greater in terms of his office and his authority and his function than I am. It is the same thing within the Godhead. We had in the person of the Son a voluntary submission to the will of the Father. So the Son could look to the Father and say, the Father is greater in terms of power and authority than I am, but he is not better in terms of person or being than he was because they are equal in that sense. So there's a distinction that's being drawn there. We as Trinitarians who believe in the deity of Christ can say without any hesitation that the Father during the time of Christ's incarnation, was greater than the Son. That doesn't cause us any problems at all. Of course He was greater than the Son. That was the role that the Son took to effect redemption, was to submit Himself to the will of the Father and to come and do all that the Father willed for Him to do. So He was greater. And I said there was, I said there was two interpretive issues. The first, what does Jesus mean when He says the Father is greater than I? And second, this is the second interpretive issue, how is it that the Father being greater than the Son should be a cause of rejoicing for them? Because doesn't the text seem to suggest that that was why they should be rejoicing? Because the Father was greater than the Son? Look at verse 28 again and read the end of it. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. It seems as if the greatness of the Father, that position of superiority in terms of office or function and glory, should be the, a cause of rejoicing in the disciples because the Father was going, or because the Son was going back to the Father. Why would that cause them to rejoice? I'm speculating here a little bit, but I think this seems to be the sense of the text that Jesus was looking at the exalted position of the Father, what the the Father enjoyed at that moment, all of the glory of that, and was saying to them, my return to the Father is the end of this humiliation. It is the not the end of His subordination to the Father, the end of His humiliation. He would return, as he describes in chapter 17, to the glory that he had with the Father from before the creation of the world. He would get all of that back. He would be vindicated. His righteousness would be demonstrated. He would be exalted and lifted up and be worshipped by saints and by angels. That was what the Father enjoyed. And as the disciples looked at what the Father enjoyed, they should have said, he's going back to the Father. It means he gets all of that as well. So the greatness of the Father and the reminder of that position of glory and vindication and exalted righteousness was what the Son was about to step into. And that should have been a cause of great rejoicing for them. So the cross from the perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ was good because it would secure His glory. That crucifixion, that resurrection, His ascension, His exaltation, all of that returning to the Father and what lay just ahead would secure His eternal glory. Second, look at verse 29. 
It would strengthen the disciples. Now, I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Jesus did this throughout his earthly ministry, and he's reminding them here of the things that he has said to them on different occasions, telling them what was about to take place. Uh, throughout the course of his ministry, he did this, where he would say to the disciples something, and, and John, we've looked at it in recent weeks a couple of times, where John would say, the disciples didn't understand this until after the Lord died and rose again. Then they got the significance of this. And so this is another one of those examples where Jesus is telling them something ahead of time with the, with the hope or the intention that, I shouldn't say hope because that kind of communicates uncertainty, with the intention that when these events would begin to unfold, the disciples would look at the events and say, he warned us about this. Therefore, since we believe that only God knows the future and only God can reveal the future, everything this man, Jesus, said about himself must be true because he has told us all of his events before they ever unfold. And they could look at the unfolding of the events and say, he warned us about this. He told us there was a betrayer. And lo and behold, look at there's Judas. He told us he would be given into the hands of sinners and be condemned and die. And look at that. They gave him to the Romans and they crucified him. He told us that he would rise again. Look at that. He rose again. He told us he was going back to the Father. And look, he ascended back to the Father's glory. Everything that he told us would happen has come to pass. And the purpose of God revealing things that will happen before they happen is so that when they happen, we may remember that he told us they were going to happen and our strength, our faith may be strengthened and encouraged by that rather than shaken. Rather than shaken. And predictive prophecy should have the same effect upon us today. As we look upon what unfolded in the life of Christ and we read here the things that he said were going to happen, we have to look at this and say, as the disciples should have, everything he said was going to come to pass has come to pass. So guess what that means? He has told us that he will come again and receive us unto himself, that where he is, there we may be also. And if everything he has said is going to come to pass has come to pass, then everything he has said will come to pass is also going to come to pass. And our our faith is strengthened as we look at that he has fulfilled all of his word and everything he said was going to happen. So not only would it secure his glory, it would strengthen his disciples. Third, it would show his righteousness. Look at verse 30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Uh, when he says, I will not speak much more with you, he is simply describing there that the reality that their time together was coming to an end. And it was. At the end of chapter 14, he's going to say, let's get up and go from here. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But he, they would soon usher out of there and make their way over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And within a matter of a couple of hours, Judas would meet them there with the detachment of Roman soldiers and 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 arrest him. And he would be delivered over to the hands of sinners. Their time was short. And so he's saying in verse 30, I will not speak much more with you. Our time is coming to an end, in other words. For the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Interesting that Jesus refers there to Satan rather than to Judas. He doesn't refer to the Pharisees or the rulers of the Jews or to Judas, who probably at this very moment was on his way with a detachment of soldiers and with the leadership of of the Pharisees to arrest Jesus. Jesus looks behind Judas to the true spiritual force that was at work. And that is the ruler of this world. That's the second time out of three times in this gospel that Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. And when we refer to him as the ruler of this world, we're not suggesting that God is in somehow subservient to Satan or that Satan has uh, all power and that he is omnipotent and that he has unfettered rule of this world, but simply that he has an illegitimate but usurped authority that God has allowed him to have for a period of time and all who are born into this world are born into his kingdom. All who live in this world live according to his dictates. He is in that sense the father of all unbelievers and the ruler of this world. It is temporary, but he does exercise some illegitimate but allowed, permitted by God, activity and authority over this realm. 
He is, in that sense, the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world is coming, and look at that phrase, he has nothing in me. That is a statement of his own righteousness. Is there anybody in this room, or anybody you have ever met, other than Lord Jesus Christ, who can say that the prince of this world, Satan, has nothing in them? You know what that is? That is a Hebraism. It's a Hebrew figure of speech that means he has no right to, no legal claim, no claim of, of accusation against me. It was a legal term as if you went to court before someone to declare your innocence and your complete purity in the matter. You would say he has no legal claim against me. He has nothing on me, nothing in me. And in that sense, it is absolutely true of the Lord Jesus Christ that this evil one, though he was coming to tempt him and to attack him like never before in the garden and on that cross, that even in the midst of dying for the sins of his people, he never sinned and he only did what was righteous. He was the righteous one who knew no sin. He did no sin. He committed no sin. He was flawless and innocent and pure and holy and righteous in thought, word, and deed always. From the moment of his birth, from the moment of his conception, all the way through until he breathed his last breath. He is the righteous one. And the enemy, the evil one, has nothing in him. He doesn't belong to this world. He's not of this world's system. He calls his believers out of this world and he is completely righteous. And Satan, the prince of this world, has no legal claim against him. That's why death could not hold him. The enemy who had over us the fear of death. Death cannot hold him because they have, Satan had no legal claim against him. So it is securing his glory, strengthening his disciples, showing his righteousness, and fourth, it shows his love for the Father. I want you to notice verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. What is it the Father commanded him? Everything Jesus did was the commandment of the Father. Remember back in chapter 5, Jesus said, I do nothing of my own initiative. But all that the Father gives me, that I do. Everything the Father tells me to, to, says for me to speak, I speak. The words that I speak to you are not my words, they're the Father's words, he said on a previous occasion. The deeds that I do, the miracles that I do, they're not my works, they're the Father's works. Every miracle, every deed, every teaching, every act of compassion, every gracious and kind thing that he ever did was all given to him by the Father and commanded to him by the Father so that everything he did was the Father's deeds. And he did nothing that was not of the Father's commandment and the Father's will. So he was perfectly and wholly and completely submitted to the Father in all that he did and perfectly obeyed the Father even up to his death. And look at verse 31. Do you think that the Father is trying to avoid the death of his Son? He is doing everything. Why? In obedience to the command of the Father. And what was the command of the Father? Son, go into the world and save all those whom I have given to you. And all that the Father gives to him will come to him and he will perfectly save all who have been granted and given to him by the Father. Why? Because he came to do the Father's will and that was the Father's will. Son, go into the world, die on a cross, atone for and purchase this bride. Die for your sheep. And the Son came to do exactly what the Father gave him to do. He fulfilled the commandment of the Father. A couple of interesting things. This is the only place in all of the New Testament where we read of the love of the Son for the Father. It's an interesting detail. It's the only place in all the New Testament where we read of the love of the Son for the Father. We read of the Father's love for the Son, and the love of the Son for the Father is assumed all the way through the New Testament, but this is the only place in all the New Testament where it is explicitly described of the my love for the Father. That doesn't mean, doesn't call into question the love of the Son for the Father. I want you to understand that. It just simply means this is the only place in the New Testament where we read of that explicit declaration that the Son Love the Father. Another interesting detail about chapter 14. This is the 23rd reference to the Father in chapter 14. 23 times. 
when you see an unusual concentration of one word in any context or in any extended passage, it is an indication to you that that one thing is intended to sort of put a tone and a flavor to the entire passage. And that's what we have here in chapter 14. Jesus knew that the disciples were disturbed. He knew that they were troubled. And so he is constantly reminding them of the Father. The Father will be in you. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. You will be in me and I in you. And you we are with the Father. The Father will make his abode with you. The Father will be there. He will assist you. He loves you. I do the Father's will. You are to do the Father's will. Show your love for me and for the Father by doing what I have commanded you. All the way through this passage, he is reminding his disciples of the Father. The Father, the Father, the Father, the Father. Why is he doing that? It ought to settle their hearts. And it ought to settle our hearts as well. To know that I have a Father in heaven. That's all I need to know. That I am related to God the Father, as my Father. That the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is my God and Father as well. And that is tremendous comfort to the heart of a disturbed or troubled disciple. And that's what we are to remember, that the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is our God and Father as well. <clears throat> now look at verse 14, the end of verse 14. Jesus says, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. That sounds like a good idea right about now, doesn't it? Get up and let us go from here. And you say, we want to, we want to interpret that and obey that in its quite literal fashion. You would be surprised at what commentators do with that little phrase. I'll give you some idea of, of, of the, the knots that people tw- twist up uh, just with that phrase. Let us go from here. Some people speculate that this really is the end of the upper room discourse and that Jesus left there and went to the garden and there he was crucified. And then what do you do with chapter 15, 16, and 17? Well, they suggest... There, uh, those are really sayings that belong to other discourses and they're sayings of Jesus, but John didn't really know where to put them, so he kind of put them here. And this is sort of John's way of saying that this, the discourse really ended, but I'm just going to throw in some teaching here before we pick it back up in chapter 18. Some have suggested that. J.B. Lightfoot in his commentary suggests there is a whole week between the end of chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15. A whole week. He inserts a whole week in there and takes this discourse and jumbles it up and puts it somewhere else in the sort of the chronology of the last week of Jesus. How about this? Try this on. I think that what Jesus was doing, he was simply saying to his disciples, get up, we're going to leave here. And they got up and they left. And he continued the teaching in chapter 15 and 16 as they made their way to where? To the garden. Because you get to chapter 18 and he is crossing the brook Kidron into the garden of Gethsemane. Why was he heading to the garden of Gethsemane? Because the prince of the world was coming. And where was he going? The garden of Gethsemane. So where did Jesus have to be? A divine appointment in the Garden of Gethsemane. The prince of this world is coming. He has nothing in me. Let's get up. Let's go. So he picks up, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Chapter 15 and 16 are the teaching along the way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. At some point in there, chapter 17, he paused and he prays that magnificent high priestly prayer of chapter 17. But uh, chapter 14 or 15 and 16 are in that course of him leaving the upper room and going to the Garden of Gethsemane. So that brings us to the end of chapter 14. Lord willing, next week we will dive into chapter 15 in that familiar uh, text of the vine and the branches. Uh, But for now, we are going to very literally obey the command at the end of chapter 14 and get up and go from here. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for all these precious reminders from your word of your love for us and your purpose in sending your son to die on a cross for us. We thank you that it was not an accident. It was not merely an expression of love, though it was that. And we thank you that it was not simply the, a life that was given in martyrdom, but that it was an atonement, a perfect and complete atonement for the sins of all who will believe. We thank you that there is sufficiency in that atonement to provide for all our sin. 
and the sins of any who will turn to your Son. May you be glorified to draw sinners to Christ, that they may find their sins laid upon him, atoned for in that death, and that you might be glorified in saving sinners. Thank you for your love for us, for your church, for your bride, for your sheep, that you would send your Son to die on our behalf. We thank you that that death on the cross secured our salvation and that we can rest in him. Comfort our hearts in trials, tribulations, and afflictions, we pray, that we may remember that we have a God and a Father in heaven who loves us like he loved his own Son and has declared us righteous because the Son is righteous. Thank you for those truths. Thank you, God, for your gracious kindness to us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.